Hi, this is David Leed of Leeds Culinaria with another episode of our Author's Answer series. Today we're with someone I'm sure you know from books, magazines, radio, and TV. In fact, she's a veritable multimedia star. It's Lucinda Scala-Quinn. She's vice president and editorial director of food and entertaining at Martha Stewart Omnimedia. But most recently, she is the author of the IACP-nominated, congratulations, cookbook called Mad Hungry, Feeding Men and Boys. Welcome, Lucinda. Hi, David. Good to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. So let's talk about the book. Tell me a little bit about the idea. It's a little obvious. I understand of why maybe you did it, but tell me a little bit more about how you came to write the book. Well, I'd like to think it wasn't, um, it isn't my fourth son, although it felt like it, maybe even <laughs> a little harder. Uh, I don't know. I guess I noticed over the years, you know, I have all brothers. I have mostly male cousins a husband, a father that, you know, had a long, long life. And I noticed one day, um, maybe it wasn't one day, but over time I sensed that there was this male patterned eating situation that Mm -hmm. I always found myself immersed in. And as my kids got older, because I have three sons, you know, once you had more than one hungry male in your path, it wasn't kind of a joke after a certain age. And I used to think, oh, I can wing it. I'll be wing, you know, and and I just realized I I learned a lot from my mom. She didn't wing it. She wasn't a fancy cook. Mm -hmm. And I also noticed that what was happening in my household was quite different from what was happening um, on my job in terms of how we looked at the way different kinds of people ate. And I just thought... Uh, I, for 20 years, have been cooking this sort of repertoire of standards that have become as familiar to my sons as a friend. And by snows, they know if they come in the house, the steak pizziola is on there, like eyes are rolling back on their head. And they'll be like, okay, I ha- I'm going out to play soccer, but when's, when are we eating? And I noticed that I had sort of unwittingly um, held their thrall through food, mm-hmm. and they liked being with us and they liked bringing their friends over and all of a sudden I noticed that the older one started wanting to cook for himself and I thought I want to um I just kept thinking of my my three th- my three sons the oh, God, television the old... show sure and um I I just thought it was a great idea and I went out to try to you know sell it and a lot of uh, publishers were interested in in the idea that I would write about food but they weren't so interested in the male angle not everybody thought the male angle was such a superb idea. And I stuck to my guns because I thought, you know, old-fashioned, uh, I'm not a writer first, mm-hmm. but you're supposed to write what you know. And I thought, well, gosh, I don't even, I know this more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the one book I have inside me that's I'm just it's going to write itself. So that's how it came about. And did it write itself? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> they never do. Funnily enough, um, the actual recipes were as as straightforward as I thought. Something that I've made a million times I don't even think about. Um, okay, so the one night I was making it and I had my pen in my hand. Because I'm, you know, from my, 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 my day job as a recipe developer, I'm... I'm pretty uh, versed in that way, but at home I'm a, I'm a you know throw it here and do it that and you know and my husband who's become quite a great cook there were a few things that he did but he, he they all know I can't stand it when they can't replicate something so if they hit on something great the first thing I'm always going to ask them is could you replicate this yep. so um, the 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 writing of my own recipes the the writing of my husband's recipes the they were fine. But what happened is, and this is the wisdom of my editor, I have to give her credit, I would toss off a sentence in a headnote that said something like, vegetable eaters are made, not born, for example. A first draft comes back, which I thought, oh, finish with this book. <laughs> first draft comes back, and she would have circled it in red and said, 
I love this. What do you mean? I want you to write an essay on this. Or I happen to make some comment about how, what a pain it is to get the guys to clean up the dishes. And, you know, I have a system by which I try to teach them. And she, oh, we need to know about this. And I, I would call her up and I'd say, we need to know how to tell people how to wash the dishes <laughs> other than just, you know, kicking their butt. And she said, absolutely. So she, David, I had to write three full drafts of this book. Really? And that's why Artisan Books and Ann Bramson are who they are. Because I've, fantastic. I've been with two other publishers and I have lovely little books, but I really had a copy editing task. You know, and I don't even know that Anne knew what she got herself into when she took my book, but I think she believed in the idea on some level and worked with me to shape what it became. She made me better than what I am, and I feel as though um, I I have a day job in a way. This was a passion project for me. I wasn't hoping, as you know, it's not like you're going to you know, make a big living necessarily. You might. You never know. Rarely, but yeah, yes. It's more for the love of it. So I succumbed to her. Uh, her thoughts when I didn't quite know where we were going. And uh, she just, I just love where she made me go. That's wonderful. For the listeners at home, one of the things you may not know if you haven't seen the book, think about one of your most beloved old cookbooks where you've written in and you have maybe some post-it notes sticking out. That's kind of what this book reminds me of because there's tips and there are insights. There are the essays even the way the headnotes are written, it's kind of put together very thoughtfully, but also it's larger than the whole is larger than the yeah. sum of it. That Somebody thing. told me um, in, I was on an extensive book tour and someone said, you know, this book should be on the psychology section, not necessarily the cookbook section. And I was taken aback. And then I thought, oh, I think that's a compliment because in many ways it is about um, expressing this basic message for me, which is basically cook for the people you love, teach them to cook for themselves, and they will pass it on. And that's the message of the book. But what's interesting is, I think part of that psychology comment is there's gender issues here. There are. You say that men eat differently than women. I do say that. And boys too. So having been a boy and now having been a man, I I think I still am am a man. (laughs) (laughs) How do you see men and women eating differently? Well, you know, David, I've taken, I've had a lot of interviews with this book. I've had a lot of issues around this subject matter. I find that I'll talk to a journalist who's a single mother of four boys and she'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe you wrote this book. This is the story of my life. And then you'll have people saying to me, really? Come on. Do men really eat differently than, than women? And I'll, and I'll say, look, I can only speak from my own experience, Mm -hmm. but I will tell you this. Rarely do the young ladies who join us at the table ask for thirds. Yes. Rarely, when I'm cleaning up dinner, do my nieces start in on what amounts to another dinner. Mm-hmm. Rarely, when I'm, I've cleaned up dinner and everybody's eaten and I've checked to see that there's milk for my coffee the next morning and it seems like the coast is clear, do I, um, I get up the next morning and not only is there no milk, but the milk carton is empty and it's in the fridge. Sometimes cap off, too. Cap off. And, you know, and I don't mind saying this now because at the same time, there's so much beauty and lust for life and unabashed um, passion around food with the men that are in my life. I feel, you know, I've had people say, oh, you know, you're promoting gender stereotypes. And I'm like, look, if you can write about feeding young ladies in a healthful manner, 
I will be thrilled to have that to read because, frankly, I found it challenging growing up and it was in a whole different time where, you know, you're 14 years old and you got to stuff yourself into the designer jeans even if your body's not made for it. Right. You know, there's stereotypes all over the place. Um, I wish there was more healthy modeling for, for females. And the guys are like, I always say about being a mother of, of, of men and, frankly, even being a sister and, frankly, even my husband, it's like there are so few mind games. It's but they'll you know they break stuff they they break stuff they're loud they'll turn your house into a you know frat house right but there's no hidden agenda so no, when it comes not. to food if it's lusty and it's tasty and it's big that's the word lusty and it hits them it's forget it and particularly when you have a group of adolescent boys around they don't really want to talk to you but they want to eat mm-hmm. and they will talk to you about that and once you have used that. I always say trade food for talk. It's mm-hmm. like you aren't going to be like, so did you get an A on your test or do you have a new girlfriend? It's like eyes roll back in your head. I don't want to eat dinner with you. But if it's they come in, they smell whatever that is cooking, they're ravenous. You know, everyone sits down, they're grunting, they're not looking at you. And suddenly you, it's like, can I pass the potatoes? And then you get a potato and then, no, oh, this is mad good. Or, oh, next thing you know, did you hear from so next thing all of a sudden I notice we're in a conversation. And so, and they slipped in. They had no idea they did. They it. had no idea. And so, I really truly believe, David, that the family dinner table is like one stop shopping for wellness. In the sense that you're nourishing yourself physically, of course, and it should be pleasure. But it's also spiritually and emotionally. And you know, it's like sounds dorky, but you know, the whole "it takes a village" notion. Well, as far as I can tell, it's pretty much the main place that I can have impact. In my home with the five people I, you know, our family of five, the table is about as much, uh, is the most consistent place I've been able to have, you know, impact on their lives. Mm-hmm. And I'm beginning to see because of their ages, the the fruits of that labor, because believe me, there are many days and many nights where it's an absolute thankless job to be the cook of a household. Now, you said, I think the most important word, they're lusty. This, this is filled with lusty food, yeah. lusty recipes. I've made the cornbread. I've made the chili. I have made the perfect fried egg, which we'll talk about later, as well as a couple of other recipes. And it is lusty. And one of the things I find on my website and blog is I have to balance the lusty foods with the rather unlusty foods because other people are coming to the site, not just people like me <laughs> who like to dig into this kind of food. Yeah. So how different do you feel the food in this book is from what you do during the day for the Martha Stewart programs and your recipe development? Well, in this book, I'm aiming for biggest flavor, fewest ingredients. Um, if I could sidestep that question for one second and just say that I truly, truly believe that the minute you're cooking with fresh ingredients regardless whether it's beef or butter or potatoes, you are uh, about 100% better off than you are if you're using processed or fast food. So from the healthful perspective, I am of the belief that um, moderation and variety are the key to healthful living. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of times when I come in, and uh, this is no joke, because now they cook more, my husband cooks. I am not joking. It'll be 95 degrees on a July afternoon. I'll come in and they will truly have roasted a side of pork. And think nothing about nothing it. Nothing of it. And I'm like, for God's sakes, all I want is a piece of steamed fish and a salad. Right. And But, they, but this is truly where they're going. And it's not to say, I mean, <clears throat> that I don't cook steamed fish. But at my job, 
where I um, oversee the food properties for Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, which includes magazines and books and so forth, um, you're in a, a whole world that straddles inspiration, aspiration, and every day. And you have, for the most part, a female reader, yep. user, viewer. So the the, the issue of um, calories and salt and, you know, nutritionals are increasingly more important to people. So I approach, you know, I, I wear many hats depending on which property we're looking at. It's just this particular, you know, Mad Hungry is just really straightforward, one-stop. I could scrounge a heel of dried-out cheese and a tortilla that's crumbled up in the back of the fridge. If I can get some heat on that and melt that cheese and douse it in hot sauce, I could have given a filet mignon to somebody at that moment if I hit them with that at the right time. Well, see, that's my kind of eating, so that's why I love the book so much. (laughs) Let's go on a little bit here. I'd like you to tell me about the 10 tenets, and I'll read them for our listeners at home. Number one is decide it's important to you. That's a really important one. There are a lot of people um, that, you know, they think nothing of having an incredible garden and wallpapering their home and having fabulous furniture and, you know, being very concerned whether their kids get A's or not in school. But they have no concept of how food impacts their lives. Mm-hmm. And for those people that don't wish to be there, then, you know, forget it. Whatever else I'm saying ain't going to be resonating They're not going to get beyond page (laughs) XIV. Exactly. So. Okay. Then we have educate yourself. Practice simple recipes. I love this. Men like simple, straightforward foods. I happen to agree. I think it's very true. Think strategy. Tell me about that one. Well, you know, I got a little tired of everybody. You know, in, in our world, it's like, you know. 30-minute meals, 20-minute meals, 10-minute meals. And I'm like, what's next? Like one-second meals? Because I love to eat, I love to cook, and I love to be with the people. But I also have a full-time job, and everyone's life is crazy. So I say take that 30 minutes and maybe take 10 minutes in the morning and put the chicken in the marinade. It may seem ridiculous, but wash those potatoes, puncture them, take the stems off the broccoli, put it into the steaming pan. So first of all, you've already gotten the groceries, which I would have done on the Sunday. Mm-hmm. So that's the strategy, you know, the shopping, 50% of cooking strategy. Getting those 30 minutes that rather than racing around at the last minute, oh, what can I do in 30 minutes? I'm chunking that 30 minutes out into that and then maybe leave a note depending on how old, who you live with or if you have kids or whomever. Um, You know, five o'clock chicken goes in at 4.50. You know, it's in the pan. My mama used to do that. A lot of my marinades are like my short ribs. I mean, the marinade's in the pan, the pan goes in the oven. There's Mm -hmm. no like get it out of the pan and, you know. Drain it. None of that stuff. I I stew cooking. Well, and that goes back to a little bit about what you said about uh, I work with a lot of professional cooks who will sear it and braise it. And I'm like, wait, what? I don't want to have another pan. Absolutely. I don't buy that I have to sear it on top of the stove and make a big mess. Why can't I just let the browning happen after all the marinade is absorbed? Like I've admired Chris Kimball for that reason at Cooks Illustrated because he takes conventional wisdom that largely comes out of cooking school vernacular and turns it on its head. Yes, he does. And my experience as being a cook for 20 years in the home is that it's a much different animal. So at work, I'm always like, really, do you think that Betty in Kansas has that pan? Did you really need to put it into another bowl before you put it into the pan? So one feeds the other a lot. But the strategy thing is huge. Okay. I also believe in cooking while I'm sleeping. So I'll put um, like okay. a... <laughs> okay. So not, we're not an ambient cooking here, no. sleepwalking. Okay. No, it's strategy. Like one night I put 
um, I had marinated a roast pork and I put it in a pan. It was a big one. Mm-hmm. And then I had taken a bunch of tomatoes and chopped them up, olive oil, garlic, thyme, and I put it in another roasting pan. And I put my oven on its lowest heat. I put it in when I went to bed. When I woke up in the morning, I pureed the tomatoes. Mm-hmm. I had the tomato sauce. And the pork turned into Cuban sandwiches, pork fried rice, about six more meals. So that really is strategizing for the week. That's really strategizing. The only challenge there is waking up and being like swooning in your sleep because the smell is so good. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a bad thing, though. So number five is economize resources. Number six, I love this, be a mealtime evangelist. We talked a little bit about this. And you say create a legacy. Mm -hmm. Talk about creating a legacy. That's very touching to me. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess, David, you must have this a little bit, too, which is, for me, um, I have these real cellular memories. Mm. And, of course, with smell being such an incredibly rich sense, um, it's like if when you're young, the happiest time you have is in the play, the little play yard at McDonald's while you're waiting for your nuggets, then that's a real cozy, warm feeling for you. Mm-hmm. And I maintain that you can you can create the feeling of comfort and joy and security that comes with a well-fed meal with people that you wish to be with by cooking stuff that smells good and by cooking stuff that tastes good and by, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, because my first son went off to college. First year was in a diner and he just kept, all he would do when he came home on the weekends, not like he's, I mean, believe me, he's like a burger guy, whatever. But this he, is called or Yeah, my oldest. oldest. He would come home and he'd say, he'd text me or he'd write me ahead and he'd say, can we just have some vegetables? Because I've always served two or three vegetables at dinner. So he didn't care if I stewed collard greens or braised escarole or steamed broccoli. He didn't care. He just knew he was craving it. So when he got his own apartment the, um, the next year, he would call me. And this goes back to, like, don't try to talk to him about the obvious things. Because I figured he would call me and go, quick question. And I knew I started to know what quick question meant. Like, don't bother me with any parental small talk. Right. You know those pork chops that you made with apples and onions? How do you do it? So I would be like, well, if he goes, no, I don't want a recipe. And I go, okay, sear the pork chops, take it out, throw in the apples and onions, uh, stick the pork chops back in, and just deglaze with like some beer or cider, whatever you have. He'd be like, okay, thanks, bye. And he just kept doing that. My husband would be like, no fair. Why does he talk to you? Why does he call you? I said, because I don't give him a question. I don't give him a Q&A. All he wants to know is how to cook. But he was longing to have that dish that had been made once a week in our home. And so simple that, in fact, in this book, he helped me because I'd run out of money on my photo shoot, and he was one of my assistants. <laughs> and um, he, at first, was like, I'm not a cook. I'm not a food editor. I'm not a food stylist. And I would be like, just shut up and do what I say. Yeah. So he would he would prep a lot of the stuff and then, you know, get it halfway, and I'd cook it, and then I'd go out to set to photograph it. And uh, So you photograph the stuff? Mikkel Vang photographed it, okay. but I was the food stylist. Right. Okay. And um, one day on the shot list, and we were shooting 10, 12, 13 shots a day, was the pork chops with apples and onions. And I was like, it was the end of the day. I said, I am too tired. I, I'm just not going to shoot that. Are you kidding? He said. <laughs> of course. That's one of our staples. How can you? I said, okay, well, then make it. You've made it before. Make it. And, he and I was kind of, and he made it. And then he goes, okay, here, you know, you can go take it out to the set, you know, where the photographer was. I said, no, you do it. I'm not a food stylist. I said, this is about real food. The picture in the book is him just putting it on the plate. And that sounds really interesting. Can we look in the book? I would defy anybody who makes pictures for a living to make a more beautiful food picture than, than this. And that's what, this one right here. Okay. Look at right here. That's beautiful. Just very simple, very real. Very simple, real, yummy. Again, yep. you mix the sweet, you got the sweet, you got the savory, you got the fat, you got yeah, the, you all know. Yeah, all of it working. 
yeah. which is great. So that's about creating a legacy. And that's wonderful. See, mine came from my grandmother's kitchen. Yeah. And my mom's kitchen, but mostly my grandmother's kitchen. That's where I have all of my those cellular memories. So, so do I also, actually, because my both sides were big, like, cook and eat together modestly, you know. Yep. And my Italian side, I mean, it literally was, Sundays, was like a scene out of a Godfather movie. We would eat there in the garage. There was way too, many people. too much food. My yeah. waspy friends would come over and go, you're having this and this and this and this and this? We'd yep. have one thing. And since and, and that's what my friends would say, and we'd have a hundred things, yes, and we us too. even if there wasn't um, you know a great deal of, of 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 material wealth, there certainly was no uh, um, lack of generosity in terms of yeah. food. And my my father's wine, my aunt's sausages, my father's peppers, my mother's beans, everything. Yeah. And they all every ingredient went into some, someone else's dish in order to make it, and we would eat it big long picnic tables either under the arbor in the summer or in the garage in the fall and sometimes in the basement in the winter because we couldn't fit everyone at, this, at one table. There exactly. were just too and many. And it didn't matter whether you had a big enough table. Not we'll make all. it work. And you are a living, you have that legacy. And I, I'm, back then I hated it. Of course. Now I love. Well, this that. is the other thing I say in this book. And, you know, don't ask them. It's not an issue. Right. You don't give them money to go eat crap on the streets. My kids used to always say, there's nothing in this house that you, you don't have to cook, I would say. And I don't want fruit because I'd have a big bowl of fruit. They right. never had to ask about the fruit. But you're right. I never bought anything extra. And now they're meal eaters mm -hmm. and they eat fruit like it's going out of style. That's great. But that if I had great. listened to them, who listens to kids? You can't, <laughs> too many parents now, I think. Yeah, it's true. So number seven, getting through these quickly, number seven is keep them healthy, which is very obvious. Uh, number eight, trade food for talk, which you talked yeah. a little bit about. Number nine, train them to fend for themselves, which is what Calder Huge was doing. Huge thing. I mean, people, a lot of people say, you know, they act like, I think this book is all barefoot and pregnant. Like, I'm going to cook for my boys and it's going to be great. But cooking. it's, it's kind of like, um, no. I always say, if you go, if, I, if you leave me and you can cook, it'll be amazing. If you can dance, forget about it. If you can give a massage, you are going to be like the right. trifecta of a guy <laughs> to somebody. Absolutely. And the last one I think is very realistic. Cook most days with pleasure because some days it's completely a chore. That's right. And I think that's, those are great tenets that all Thank of you. us can live by as we're doing our cooking every day. Now, in the book, you talk a lot about equipment, knives and pans. I really want to understand this love affair, this obsession that you have with cast iron pans. Talk to me about, about that. Well, I have um, always had cast iron when I had barely anything in my life. And I discovered that at home, when I wasn't in a professional, since I'm 15, I've been working professionally, I could never at home get the, the heat level I wanted. And I discovered that cast iron, for one thing, retained heat. So I could get it really, really, really hot and control, and I could get the sears I wanted, and I could get that. Beyond that, I found I always disliked nonstick. I never trusted it. Mm -hmm. I still don't, even though everyone says it's fine. So I think that the patina on a cast iron skillet, when it's well-seasoned, is one of the most glorious nonstick patinas you could ever, ever, ever achieve. And you have no problem doing a very delicate fish, searing it in a non, in a Cast iron skillet, coming up with no a problem. very delicate fish. Um, I could I could possibly have some issues, but I would th th there would be a couple things that would have to happen, like blazing heat, perfect seasoning. Mm -hmm. um, you know what 
you know, what shape is the fish in when it goes in, those kind of things. But okay. I, for me, if I'm stuck on a desert island and I've got one thing, it's it's cast iron. Okay. It also goes from stovetop to stove to table. I cook my, you know, and I, I have on top of my stove right now a 14-inch, a 10-inch, and a 6-inch skillet that live there. They okay. just sit there. The kids are trained from the beginning how to clean them. Because if you put soap on the skillet, you'll get grounded for a week. So tell our listeners <laughs> how to clean it, just in case they're going to run out and get um, a skillet. Well, unfortunately, now you have to buy frequently. the, And they're cheap. That's the other thing. I mm-hmm. mean, it used to be 15 bucks. Maybe yeah. now for 26 bucks, you can get a 10-inch skillet. Um, and now, unfortunately, a lot of them come pre-seasoned. I say unfortunately because it doesn't really give you the chance to do what what you know, your, your seasoning, which is if you get one. And the other thing I like is if you're frequenting flea markets, there's a lot of times you can find them, they're rusty and they're, you know, that's a good time to pick one up because usually there's a patina on there that's rusted over. So mm-hmm. then I would just clean it up and get the rust off with that, you know, soap and water, that's fine. Or if you have one that is fresh from the store, um, you know, wash it with some warm water. Then fill it, not all the way, but, you know, just short of the top with some neutral oil, probably not olive oil, a vegetable, safflower, and put it in the oven um, at about 200. Sometimes low is too low, but you don't want it to be too high. And you let it stay in there for a good hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And then you pour out that fat. Don't keep it. And then the first few things I would cook in that skillet, you know, maybe fried chicken or a fried something. And then ultimately you have a pan that can really, you know, do anything. I mean, I, I make I make cobblers. I make my cornbread in there. Mm-hmm. I do my slow braises of my meats. I um, I heat it up sometimes. Like, oh, just take something like a pork roast. This isn't in the book, but I just did it last night where I would take, I would get the um, skillet blazingly hot. And then I would just, you know, take the, the, the meat you know, salt, pepper, and some rosemary. And then when it gets, when the skillet's so hot that I just take that little roast sirloin and I just sort of turn it over and it gets some color on it and then just put it right in the oven and mm-hmm. and that's it. No searing it again all over the top and of then the oven. how would you get the skillet clean after that with a little burnt-on beet? Okay, so that's a good question. So what I do is um, I put the skillet back on the, on the pan, on mm-hmm. the heat and I use a spatula and I get some water in there. I don't mind water and sort of scrape it up and then dump it out and then wipe it. If I have to, I'll take it over to the sink and really scrub it with water. And then what I do is I put it back on the heat when it's clean on high. And and what happens is is that all the water evaporates. It and, starts to skitter. And then what you're left with is the oil kind of almost heating up and seasoning even further. And would you put a little little bit of oil in I there I would sometimes? once, I would in the beginning while I'm getting my pan, but my pans are like, my pans that I use are about 20 years old yeah, so and I don't have well to do a seasoned. darn thing to them. A lot of people write in on my website and saying, how do you season it? And yeah. that's pretty much what we do. Yeah, and I do my um, my flat roast chicken, which is one of my, my, my signature recipes in, in my 14-incher on that too. Mm-hmm. Your, vinegar, your vinegar... I love that recipe. But the flat roast was a total, you know, you know, technically a spatchcock chicken, but it was like, you know, we always do roast chicken because you have to, and you've got all those starving people every week, you do a couple roast chickens. And then one night I was just looking for speed and I just cut the backbone out and flattened it and it cooked in 40 minutes. Isn't that amazing? So 20 minutes less and it's, and it has the added benefit of the, of the breast and the, um, 
thigh meat all being ready at the same time. Yeah, so. which is great. And the searing on the bottom, too, which is nice. So tell me, any jobs you think men should take care of when it comes to mealtime, since you're being the, you're Any in the job kitchen? that I would do, they should do. Okay. So you have no problem with the, your kids going in, cooking, obviously cleaning up. We have that whole thing. <sighs> I have Although a whole they, section on cleanup. I know. Crusty. Boys don't think anything wrong with crusty pots They don't. And, and I also, and you know, you can imagine I've been ra- rambling on about this for many years. <laughs> right. I last week found um, Crystal in the dishwasher with an upturned Le Creuset crusted pot, neither of which should be in the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. And I just think, what the heck, you know? And I and I have. I've taken, you know, I've taken stuff and put it on their pillow. I've taken stuff and... Good for you. Oh, yeah. My I, mother does that. I... Listen, do you know how annoying it is to me? I mean, why is it that, I mean, I'm happy to clean the dishes and I do clean the dishes. You know, I, it's all about, you know, and I say this to a lot of people who have little kids or whatever, you know, it's all about, you know, don't rob them of the opportunity to become independent people by being, doing everything for them. Mm-hmm. It's all about making people independent and setting, and the only gift you can really ultimately give is modeling the behavior. So I have no problem doing it. It's just that, and then and then early on, you got to force them to do it. You know, you got to do stuff like no money, no dry, no ride, mm-hmm. no TV, no coat. I mean, any by all means, by any means necessary. It depends on what the age is, you know? Right. right. Okay. Now in the, the subtitle, it says recipe strategies and survival techniques. Give me five off the top of your head, most important survival techniques for someone. Or survival strategies. Have food in the house. Okay. Could be just the pantry. There's a whole section on a guy on a guy, guy pantry. Guy pantry, saw that. Um, you know, I went to make a burger. Actually, when I was developing this book, uh, for me, it wasn't about how do you make a burger. It was what are the components of the burger. Mm-hmm. And I found, just like the milk, I found the ketchup had red stuff all on the outside, but right. there was no ketchup on the inside. Right. So I just said, okay, that's fine, and I use Worcestershire sauce. Mm-hmm. So you have to be fla- uh, facile, and you have to have some ingredients in the house, Okay. Um, number one. Uh, do not wait to the last minute to think about things. Um, I think you have to put some forethought. I'm always one or two steps ahead of the game in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, survival techniques, um, don't think everything has to be so fancy, complicated. If you're not a cook and you want to feed your family, it can be as simple as, you know, take no detail for granted. So in the morning it might be bring out five cereal bowls, five napkins, five spoons, uh, a pitcher of juice and two boxes of cereal, mm-hmm. um, but that's what's for breakfast. Okay. You're not a short order cook. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, going back to clean up, clean up as you go along. No exceptions. Don't let anybody buck that rule. And you fight it. You fight it all the way. Because um, if any of us have had married somebody who doesn't know how to clean up, or you've gone into a roommate situation with someone who doesn't clean up, you become a you know a real pariah. And you can't do that. You've got to teach people around you. So to survive in your own home, it's like, you know, clean up as you go along, no exceptions. Um, Vegetables have to be made and they have to be eaten and it doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. You have to make them and you have to survive on technique when it comes to vegetables. You have can have the mushy bunch of spinach that's awful, like so many of our 
mothers and grandmothers or whatever have made, yeah. or you can just so gently steam that spinach that I don't even walk away from the spinach. And in fact, I don't even put the top on. I wait till it just collapses. And that's it. And that's it. And then I pull it out and I toss it in olive oil, salt and pepper, maybe a squeeze of lemon. But that's about applying a technique. Um, knowing, you know, a revelation for me was cauliflower. Cauliflower can be so awful, a sulfury mush. Mm -hmm. But when you slice that thin and oven roast it at a high temperature with olive oil, salt, and pepper, you have what amounts to potato chips. Yeah. So you need to have some techniques up your sleeve when it comes to vegetables. And you need to teach people you eat with to eat more than meat because meat is expensive. It's not always um, the most healthful. And as a planetary concern, we, we've got to start eating more legumes and alternative protein sources. So um, I've trained them from, in my house from the beginning, chickpeas, red beans, lentils. I've always at least had one or two nights that is full-on protein alternative to meat. So okay. for me, it's a survival technique because I've always been on a budget with, with, with my family. Um, I'm not this person who, you know, it's just I have. I've had to be. Um, and I think lastly, really train them to fend for themselves when it, cook, when it comes to cooking and watch and see when um, they have interest and steal ideas from their friends. Okay. Because I have my youngest son who's an athlete, big athlete, big, big meat eater. And he used to go um, stay over at his friend um, Nate's house. Well, Nate's family was vegan. And in my head, I always used to think, God, poor Luca, when he's at Nate's, like, what does he do? Like, what does he eat? So one day to my absolute, like, I was flabbergasted. He came in and he goes, man, you know, Nate's mom, Pam, she makes the best soup. And I'm thinking, what is he eating in this vegan house that is so good? So I called up Pam and I said, Pam, you know, Lucas says you make soup that he loves. She goes, oh, all I make is lentil soup with vegetables. And I thought, if you had told me that I could put a lentil in this kid's mouth, I would have never believed you. Right. And that's recipes in this book. So I made the lentil soup and, he, oh, he was thrilled. Oh, I can get the soup at home. And now it's like a regular big pot. Everyone loves it. But what I did in the pictures here, too, is I took um, old bread and I made big square croutons that I sauteed Crouton, yeah. in olive oil with, with salt. And um, and suddenly this this dish went from, you know, and it's, it's so economical. But um, train them to fend for themselves is a really important survival strategy. technique because it comes down to now where I have 15, 19, and 23, they contribute to the household. Well, what's interesting is your strategies, they talk a bit about work ethic yeah. and also about social ethic, mm -hmm. which is interesting. So the book, which is why I'm attracted to it, it kind of goes beyond just a cookbook, which is what I was saying earlier, that it's it's a book that has a lot of things pasted into it and, and yeah. posted, noted into it. And I think that's what makes us so useful to a cook, to a mom, to a mm -hmm. wife, anyone, to me and my, my exactly. particular family. I, mean, that's, I really looked at it like a, a lot of young moms have, you know, have glommed onto it, and I love that. But I'm really satisfied by the fact that a lot of college students are getting back to me. You know, a lot of men who live together, who, you know, cook for each other are finding the book, you know, of interest. Useful, so yes. it's not just mom cooking for the boy or the husband. And I love to hear how it works on different levels. So the last question I want to ask you is your husband, Richie, your son, Calder, your son, Miles, and also your son, Luca, what are their favorite dishes, one each? Okay, so, well, oh gosh, this is hard. I mean, the steak pizziola is a, is a massive hit. Okay. And I would say 
That's pretty much one of Richie's absolute all-time favorites, although everyone else freaks out when we make it. And that is literally a, you know, a, a two-pound piece of chuck that is so affordable. 14-inch mm-hmm. cast iron skillet. There you go. Um, and you it's salt and pepper, hot. you sear on both sides, and then you take that out. And then into that skillet goes um, canned tomatoes, garlic, oregano, hot chili, and then back in goes the steak, and then it goes in the oven for two hours. Mm. And it transforms itself into this insane scent, and you can either eat it like that with sides, or we do a lot, is we make like rigatoni and just big chunks of that mixed with rigatoni. So I would say that was Richie. Um, Calder always asks for the vinegar gloss chicken. Which is great. They all love it, but he so always great. asks for that, and he always wants there to be um, polenta with it. Um Miles is the wild card in the group, which is why you see stuff like laksa in here, right. um, oxtail with noodles. He laksa, he he just loves eccentric Asian food. Okay, he likes everything, but that would be his favorite recipe in the book is the is the laksa, and um, Luca. gosh, Luca. I don't know. I don't know the bacon, egg, and cheese, which I learned to make from the New York delis on the you know Upper West Side. Because I noticed that they were fleeing the house and buying those things, right? So that I decided I was going to make them better, and I must say that that Luca absolutely loves that. You know, I hate to say it; these are the things that they have grown up on. So there's there's a heck of a lot in here that they really love. The Mexican eggs, back to the cast iron skillet. Yep. Um, they're made in the big cast iron skillet and just plopped on the table. Maybe with tortillas, but if I don't have time, I'll just crumple tortilla chips on the whole thing. So you've got the crunchy, salty chip with the you know, mm-hmm. chili, spicy. So so speaking about eggs, actually, I wanted to ask you, talk to me a little bit about the perfect fried egg, because actually this audio will be attached to the perfect fried egg on the website. We're going to take the recipe, because my grandmother made it differently. Yeah. Well, of course. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the only thing I called perfect here, because, um, you know... For one thing, no one in my household can tolerate the kind of runniness on the top of the egg. Right. I don't think anyone can. And I really can't tolerate the crusty brown stuff on the bottom of an egg to get it cooked. What about that nice little frizzle on the edge? Do you like that? I don't mind a frizzle. I like a perfect fried egg. And what that does to me is that the white is cooked. Mm Mm-hmm. At the exact same time that the yolk is just cooked. Okay. And there's so there's no goobiness on top of the yolk. But gooby. There's, yeah, gooby. That's in the dictionary, gooby. Yeah. So my mom is where I learned how to do this because what she would do is she would have her pan would be hot and she'd put her fat in there and she'd crack her egg. And then she'd walk over, casually walk over to the sink and run her hand underneath the faucet and then just toss water in there and then put the top on. And she never timed it or anything, but it was always perfect because the steam that created around the top would cook the top while the bottom was cooking. Okay. So I have always done that. And I've taught, you know, my family to do it. There's a picture in the book. That's how this was cooked. That's a gorgeous photograph. It's a great because look, everything's cooked. I don't know, maybe David, you could see a little ruffle. A little frizzle. You could see a little frizzle. Um so And it's just a tablespoon of butter. That's it. I, well, because I have my perfectly seasoned cast iron pan. Of course. <laughs> See, Vavo Costa would put in probably like two or three tablespoons of um, olive oil. What yeah. You cook well, the thing is, that's true. But um, if you have a perfectly seasoned pan, <laughs> you don't have to do it. This is why I'm obsessed with these pans. Okay. But 
I know my mom uses nonstick skillets, and that's a surefire way, you know. Right. Um, but the it's water. Cheating. And so, for the purpose of the recipe, I really worked hard to say how much water do you really need, and how much time do you really need the top on? Because of course, you don't want to overcook it, where it's kind of opaque on the top. Right. So that's my perfect fried egg every time. Every time. That's the so recipe. That's the name of the title: <laughs> Perfect Fried Egg Every Time. Well, what we're going to do is we are asking restaurateurs and chefs some bloggers, some of our readers, how they do the perfect fried egg. Then we're going to put it all together and you can go back and see how they do it. Oh, I can't wait. And it's going to see, and then we're going to introduce them to your way and see what they think of your Uh-oh. way. Uh-oh. So. I hope they like my way. I'm sure that it'll be an it's option. It's just a humble little home <laughs> home remedy. <laughs> so now we're going to have an egg, an egg yeah. smacked out. Yeah. Lucinda, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you, David. We've been chatting with Lucinda Scala-Quinn, the author of the wonderful book, Mad Hungry, Feeding Men and Boys. And I suggest you go out and buy it today. And until next time, I'm David Leet from Leet's Culinaria. Tune in soon for another episode of our Author's Answer series that will always keep you hungry for more. Oh,